Right, go ahead with the logic. Okay, Mark, logic one and two, Mark. Houston, we are set. We have a cryo press light. Roger, copy, cryo press light. Apollo 11, this is uh, Houston. Minus 10, 9, 8. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello and welcome to Space Gen, the show where you find out all the latest from the space industry. You can catch our episodes on X-Ray FM every Wednesday at 8 a.m. or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and let's get into the news. In space, the search for present-day life on Mars is heating up, and there's a good reason. We have an improved knowledge of Mars' geological diversity and history, a better appreciation of life in extreme environments here on Earth, and a sharp focus on the sensitive life detection measurement methods, which are all bolstering up the Mars life hunt, giving scientists more reason to think that they might just find something. Now, astrobiologists and other experts have been tackling these issues for, you know, since last November during the conference at the National Cave and Karst Research Institute in Carlsbad, New Mexico. On the meeting agenda was a discussion of how to best test the extent of life on Mars, with or without the benefit of collection systems. Such systems include complex and pretty pricey sample return efforts that officially kick off this summer with the launch of NASA's Mars 2020 rover, which we all know about. And while the cold, dry surface of Mars, with its harsh radiation environments, is widely considered to be uninhabitable, the subsurface has been hypothesized to be viable, uh, long-lived habitable environments, protected by the punishing surface conditions of Mars. So, you know, there could even be a place where water could be stable underground. Over the years, researchers have spotted pit craters on the surface of Mars. So these features, uh, you know, where the roof of a lava tube has partially collapsed, creates a skylight, which is kind of cool. And researchers at the meeting pointed out that Mars circling spacecraft have imaged numerous potential cave entrances. Shielded underground as they are, could lava tubes be prime microbial real estate for Mars? Well, we don't know. We've got to find this out. Now, Penny Boston, who's a senior advisor for the science integration at NASA's Ames Research Center, said, quote, It's pretty clear to me that there's much to be done to seek extinct life, and certainly extinct life in a variety of environments all over Mars. Now, as an astrobiologist, Boston has been a cave diver for some 25 years. Now, she said that, I think we all recognize that there's not just a single way to go for the search for life. Now, she mentioned that I think people are often very leery of the idea because they may think of caves as mines, and mines are dangerous because we've recently made those mines and they're all shored up by human structure. But in the case of natural caves that have been, you know, geologically over long periods of time, like they've been able to stabilize, it's more likely that a cathedral is going to collapse than a natural cave. And that's very true. There's some exceptions to this, obviously. Caves in a pretty seismic activity area, they're going to be more 
unstable, so you would obviously be more leery around them. Now, either way you look at this, we're going to be getting answers very soon, and this is all going to be with the launching of humans to Mars for the early 2020s. Now, talking about launching humans, Starship. Now, Elon's been sharing quite a number of updates about the progress of Starship this week, along with footage of the assembly process of the current SN1 prototype of Starship. Now, he explained on Twitter that some of the other considerations and strategies that the company is working with as it works on its new spacecraft is going to be to try and fly it this year. Now, he said that SpaceX is iterating at a much faster pace with Starship than recently with the Falcon. Now, the Falcon rockets, the design was more or less stabilized once it started working constantly, which is all those tests. He noted that the ability to progress with the design toward having it into a production vehicle is dependent on the number of interactions of the prototypes of the spacecraft multiplied by the progress achieved between each version. And that's been the way that SpaceX has worked all the way through in the past. And one of the key reasons that it's been able to upend the whole traditional rocket launch industry. It moves fast, iterating as it goes, and makes changes based on failures very quickly. Whereas the industry has largely been focused on more stop-start development cycles where things are mostly fixed and there's a brief period of intense focus on improvements between long-lived vehicle generations. But SpaceX is going to need to increase the rate at which it's building because testing and flying these prototypes if it aims to make that 2020 orbital flight. But they've made pretty good progress. They've been hiring and helping speed up production and earlier this year Elon sent out a call for job applicants to staff up additional production shifts for round-the-clock operations. And SpaceX, as we know, just a little while ago hosted a job fair for interested applicants at its Texas site, Boca Chica, Texas. So they're pretty much on track to making sure that Starship meets the deadlines. And talking about production, rockets, and meeting deadlines, Blue Origin has opened a factory. Not just any factory, they've opened a lunar lander engine manufacturing facility in Huntsville, Alabama. Hmm, that kind of sounds familiar, right? That's because Huntsville, Alabama is known as Rocket City. That's where NASA did all of their development. So interesting to see that they're choosing the same place. Now, in addition to the BE-7 engines that are going to be used on that lunar lander, the facility is also going to produce the BE-4 and BE-3U engines, all of which can go on and be used and tested at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, which is in Huntsville, Alabama. Now, Blue Origin, they're excited by how this new facility and all the new testing will advance their spaceflight capabilities. And the CEO, Bob Smith, said, quote, At the core of every successful launch vehicle program, there are the engines that power those vehicles to space. It's an exciting time for Blue and our partners in the country. You know, we're on the path to deliver on our promise to end the reliance on Russian-made engines. Now, the test facility already has some capabilities to create space-like environments for testing, and the test site, which is 1-42 at Edwards Air Force Base, can already test small engines in a space-like vacuum environment, so it's pretty convenient. And the major facility modifications are being funded by Blue Origin, and this is to add liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen propellant capabilities. Through the testing, you know, with this BE-7, the whole purpose is to kind of test these upgrades. 
the newly improved facility is also going to be used for testing other pieces of hardware and engines. So some pieces that will be tested at the facility will be not the engines, probably meaning bits of the lunar lander that they're putting together. So pretty cool to see the whole kit, the whole factory has been completed and it's all in conjunction with SpaceX as well. So a bit of competition now starting to boil up. And going into competition, now space tourism, as we know, it's going to be a big business of the future and you've got Virgin Galactic and they went public and that's what they do. I think it's 250,000 you can go on a flight uh, up into the, the edge of space and then you come back down to Earth. But there are other space tourism companies and we know Blue Origin, SpaceX, Boeing, they're all doing that kind of a thing. But SpaceX has got a little bit of news. Uh, they're partnering with a space tourism company called Space Adventures to send those of us that, you know, we're not astronauts. They're going to be able to send these people up to the edge of space, maybe even a little higher than what Virgin Galactic can do and all the way back. Now, Eric Anderson, who's the chairman of Space Adventures said, quote, creating unique and previously impossible opportunities for private citizens to experience space is why Space Adventures exists. So these guys, they were obviously impressed by the reusable SpaceX Crew Dragon pulling off its first demo mission to the International Space Station last year and successfully testing out its launch escape system more recently. Now, SpaceX and Space Adventures, there's a lot of space in these company names, have agreed to join forces to give four private citizens a view of Earth that no one has ever seen since NASA's Gemini program, which was the prelude to the Apollo missions. This is going to be the first time tourists orbit Earth in a mission that's powered entirely by American technology. Now, Gwen Shotwell, who's the SpaceX president and CEO, said that, quote, this is a historic mission that will forge a path to the making spaceflight possible for all people who can dream it. We're pleased to work with Space Adventures team on the mission. And I think this is a little bit of a stretch, you know, all people that can dream about it because the tickets, they're not going to be cheap. Uh, there's no price tag right now, but they're going to be close to Virgin Galactics. So Space Adventures and SpaceX are going to need to find four people brave enough and obviously that have enough money to do the first flight. But either way you look at it, it's probably going to be a pretty historical moment with the first private citizens going up to that kind of an altitude, you know, into orbit. That's going to be pretty cool. Now, talking about something a little different, Jupiter. Newly released data from NASA's Juno probe shows that water may make up about 0.25% of molecules in the atmosphere over Jupiter's equator. And obviously, while that doesn't kind of sound like much, the calculation is based on the prevalence of water components. You know, you've got hydrogen and oxygen, three times more than at the sun. The new measurements Juno obtained are much higher than previous missions suggested, which, you know, the surprise result has scientists looking into results from NASA's Galileo mission to Jupiter, which obtained drier results in 1995 when engineers deliberately threw the spacecraft into Jupiter's atmosphere. Reconciling the result from Galileo and Juno is key for scientists to better understand how our solar system came together. Now, since Jupiter was probably the first planet to form, it could have just sucked up most of the gas and dust that the sun's formation left behind. And how much water Jupiter soaked up? Well, you know, this is the big question. This should help scientists identify the most plausible theories to explain this kind of formation.
Now, understanding Jupiter's birth would in turn help scientists understand how the planet's wind currents move and what's inside, you know, what's what their insides are made of. So scientists should be able to generalize findings at Jupiter to certain kinds of large exoplanets to learn how other solar systems are formed. And Galileo's results, they were obviously a puzzle back then in the 90s, and the spacecraft sent back data showing 10 times less water than scientists had predicted. And more weirdly, the amount of water appeared to increase the deeper Galileo went into Jupiter's atmosphere, and that was all according to NASA. Now, scientists had expected that by the time that it stopped transmitting data at depths of about 75 miles, the atmosphere around it should have been, you know, well mixed with an unchanging composition. But a ground-based infrared telescope was able to measure the water concentrations at Jupiter at the same time Galileo plunged, and it showed that Galileo may have accidentally hit a dry spot, meaning that water was not well mixed deep in Jupiter's atmosphere. So Scott Bolton, who is the Juno Principal Investigator at Southwest Research Institute, said, When we think that we have things figured out, Jupiter reminds us of how much we still have to learn. Juno's surprise discovery that the atmosphere was not well mixed, even well below the cloud tops, it's a puzzle that we're trying to still figure out. No one would have guessed that water might be so variable across the planet. And just talking about that, just for the last thing, it kind of reminded me of this story I read. Now, a record has seemed to have been made for an orbit. Now, there's a gas giant called NGTS-10b, and it's zooming around its own little star so closely it completes an entire orbit in just 18.4 hours. So that's like insane. Now, it's nearly as close as a planet can kind of get to a host star without starting to be ripped apart by gravitational forces. Astronomers say that the exoplanet is spiraling in towards the star and it will cross that ripping apart point called the Roche limit in just about 38 million years, which is still quite a while, but it's pretty clear that the planet's pretty doomed. Now, this is what you call a hot Jupiter, which, as the name kind of suggests, it's a gas giant like Jupiter, but unlike Jupiter, they orbit very close to their host stars, with orbit periods of less than 10 days, and that's what makes them hot. So you can see why 18.4 hours is really close. So one of the 4,000 confirmed exoplanets discovered to date, you know, up to 337 could be hot Jupiters. Though it's kind of thought that they're formed farther out from their planetary systems and then they migrate inwards towards the star. But we don't know much about the mysterious births, but hot Jupiters are particularly close to their stars and they can tell us a lot about the star's planet tidal interactions. So with this continued observation, it could reveal the new exoplanet's orbital decay. The team predicts that the orbit will shorten by 7 seconds over the next 10 years. If astronomers can obtain precise enough measurements of the system, they might actually be able to see it happening with their own eyes. And that would be one priceless sight. Again, this is all news we just had in the last week. This is how quick things are starting to move, and as I've said before, we really are heading into a new space age. So if you like hearing about the news, make sure to tune in every Wednesday at 8am on X-Ray FM, or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and I'll see you next time.